I uh, can't quote it by memory, but my calcified brain is having trouble memorizing scripture these days, but I keep working at it. And uh, one of the verses, two, it's two verses I'm working on are Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. And I just want to read them for you as a way to set your heart before we get into God's word. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things, and thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. And then he says, but to this one I will look. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Who trembles at my word. That's the attitude we should have as we approach God's word today and every day. And so with that, would you turn to John chapter 16, and there should be an outline in your bulletin, and there are printed messages at both exits, and uh, there are uh, all of the printed messages, and most of the audio are online. We come to the end of Jesus's formal discourse to the apostles in the upper room on the night in which he was betrayed and just hours before he is arrested and crucified. And um, then, Lord willing, we'll look at the prayer that Jesus offers in John 17 beginning next week. He says in verse 25, These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I don't say to you that I'll request the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I'm leaving the world and going to uh, leaving the world again and going to the Father. His disciples said, "Lo, now you're speaking plainly and you're not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God." Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. I'm talking today on the subject of overcoming spiritual failure, and uh, I think I should have a few people here who can relate to having failed spiritually. If there's anyone here who has never failed spiritually, you can go out and get a cup of coffee right now. Uh, but uh, I think most of us can relate to that topic probably as recently as this week. 
uh, we all have our spiritual failures. And you know, it's, it's a tribute to a musician if he can take a dilapidated old instrument and use it to make wonderful music. And it's a tribute to a, a surgeon if he can perform a delicate surgery at a remote mission station under very primitive conditions without all of the modern gadgets and technology we have here in the United States. And it's even a greater tribute to our Lord that he takes imperfect instruments and he uses them for his purpose to build his kingdom. And when you think about the apostles who are the foundation of the church, they weren't strong, brilliant, unusually gifted men who would stand out and whatever they did in life be great successes or anything like that. They were weak men, and they often failed. And sometimes as you read the Gospels, you go, wow, they are so spiritually clueless, you just wonder, how could they be so dull? I mean, come on, guys, you know, don't you understand plain language? C.H. Dodd, a New Testament scholar, made this observation. He said, it's part of the character and genius of the church that its founding members were discredited men. It owed its existence not to their faith, courage, or virtue, but to what Christ had done with them, and this they could never forget. Now, I'd modify his comment and say uh, it is uh, to the genius, not of the church, but of the Lord of the church. It is to Christ's glory that he could take these men and use them for his purpose and glory. But sometimes I just marvel with even my own slip-ups and bumbling that after 2,000 years of working with characters like me and others, how can the church still exist and hold together? And that's a tribute, I think, to the glory of our Lord. Now, our text, as I said, is Jesus' final teaching to these men before he goes to the cross, and all of them are about to fall spiritually, to slip on the banana peel, so to speak, and splat on their faces. Jesus, in verse 32, calls their attention to this. Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered each to his own home and to leave me alone. There's a certain pathos in those words, to leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. And so, humanly speaking, at Jesus' hour of greatest need, his men leave him. They abandon him and run for their lives. And they didn't even see it coming, even though Jesus tells them. Remember earlier in the evening, Peter protested and said, Lord, I'm willing to lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, no, Peter, before the night's over, you're going to deny me three times. And they all, oh, no, no. And it says they all joined Peter in protesting and saying, oh, no way. You know, no way. That's not going to happen. But it did happen. And so here they think they understand Jesus in verses 29 and 30. They, they say, oh, now we get it. Now we believe. 
And Jesus challenges them. He knew otherwise and says, no, no, you're all going to desert me. But he tells them these things that we're going to study this morning so that their failure would not be final. And yours doesn't have to be either. And that's the good news. He's equipping them and us to overcome our spiritual failures and to go on and live lives that would serve him, that would glorify him. And even though they're going to lose the battle that night, they don't have to lose the whole war. And I hope that message comes through to you. Maybe you've lost more than one battle, but you don't have to stay there. You don't have to lose the war. Grace is the motivating factor here. And I think Jesus' theme is in verse 33 where he says, In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. And so we can sum up his message by saying that to overcome spiritual failure, be encouraged that there's always hope in Christ, uh, in the grace, in the love and grace of God that's found in Jesus Christ. And I want to break that love and grace down into five aspects that are here in our text. The first one is in verse 25, and that is to overcome spiritual failure. Be encouraged that there's always hope in Christ for future spiritual growth. Verse 25 again. These things, Jesus said, I've spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I'll no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I'll tell you plainly of the Father. I think these things refers most immediately to the upper room discourse, but I think it's perhaps can be stretched to his entire three years with the disciples and that there were many times where Jesus spoke in figurative language that the disciples kind of went, huh? You know, it just went right by them. Uh, That word figurative language um, is used elsewhere only in John 10.6, in John. Uh, But it refers to language, according to Leon Morris, where the meaning does not lay on the surface, but must be searched for and thought about. So it's the kind of thing where he says it and you have to stop and think about, wait a minute, what did that mean? Um, And he said many things like that. You you know, a, a bad tree doesn't bring forth good fruit. Well, he's not talking about horticulture. And you stop and think about, well, what is he talking about? What does that mean? What are the implications of it? And uh, so the Lord here is recognizing their confusion over many of the things that he had said. But he's promising a time in the near future when they're going to get it. They're going to understand he's going to speak about the Father. And they're going to say, yes, and it's going to come through clear. And so... What he's doing is they're confused at the moment. They realize something foreboding is happening, but they're not quite sure what. And he's speaking hope into that confusion. And I believe he's speaking hope into your and my confusion because if you're like me, and I'm sure you are, there have been many times you have been spiritually confused by circumstances, by Scripture, by something where you're just reeling and going, I don't get it. I don't get it. And he wants you to know you might not get it right now, but there's hope for the future. 
Remember back in John 2, Jesus cleansed the temple. And then he told the Jews uh, in John 2.19, Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And uh, John explains he wasn't talking about the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. He was talking about the temple of his body. But the, Jew, the, the disciples didn't get it at that point. And so John adds in John 2.22, he says, So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So at the time, they were totally confused by what, what he said. Later, they got it. Uh, many other instances of that. Let me just point out one in John 13, where Jesus washed the disciples' feet, and um, Peter protested, and Jesus said to Peter in John 13, 7, what I do now, uh, you do not, or what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. So at the moment, he just didn't get it. Later, it came clear to him, hereafter. Now, when Jesus in verse 25 says the hour is coming, I think he could be referring to the hour after the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and indwelled the disciples and gave them clarity and light and brought to remembrance all that Jesus had said. Uh, But more immediately, I think he's referring even to the 40 days after his resurrection. And remember on the Emmaus Road with those men, he he taught them, and at first they didn't get it, and then they, they did get it. Their eyes were opened. And in Luke 24, later, verse 45, it says, He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And that's what we all need. We need the Lord to open our minds to understand the Scriptures. And uh, it was especially true with regard to the Scriptures about His suffering before he would enter his glory, because they thought Messiah is going to come, he's going to conquer, he's going to reign. You missed something. He's going to come, he's going to die as a substitute for our sins, be raised from the dead, and then he's going to come again and conquer and reign. And so they didn't get that little blip in the middle there, and so they had to uh, learn from the Holy Spirit and from Jesus himself after the resurrection. And after that, I believe God's whole plan of salvation opened up to them so that finally now they got it. Now, you still might wonder, well, why does the Lord speak in mysterious language at all? I mean, why doesn't he just make Scripture so clear that we all would open it and go, got it. <laughs> I got it now, man. That's that's easy. Well, uh, I think Calvin has a good insight there. John Calvin in his commentary he says, The Lord allows us, in his words, to be stupefied for a time. He says, so that we'll learn our own spiritual poverty before he brings clarity to us. And I think the point he's making is, if it were easy, we'd all pat ourselves on the back for our own brilliance. Say, yep, I know it. I got it. You know, and rather, like that verse I read, we have to humble ourselves and tremble at God's word where we call out to him and say, Lord, I don't get it. I, I need your uh, illumination to understand the, these things. And then when the Lord gives us light after we have humbled ourselves and called out to him, then we say, praise God, it's not my brilliance, 
It's only God's grace that I understand this, this truth in his word. Um, another factor, and I commented on this when we uh, looked at John 16, 12, and 13, is the Lord is a gracious father. And as a father, you know, you don't dump the whole load on your kids when they're five years old. They don't get it at that age. They have to grow. And so you feed them what they can handle at the age appropriate. And over time, they begin to grow and absorb more and more. And the Father does that with us as well. Note also in verse 25, what Christ promises to tell the disciples about. He says, uh, he's going to speak plainly to them of the Father. And again here, Calvin says that Christ's aim, he says, is to lead us to God in whom true happiness lies. That's a profound statement. Christ is going to lead us to God in whom true happiness lies because we all, by nature, seek happiness in all kinds of things rather than God. And Christ says, I'm going to tell you plainly about the Father. That's our need to know Him. And the only way we can know the Father is through the Son. Jesus said that in Matthew eleven twenty seven. He makes an astounding comment. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. Wow. All things have been handed over to Jesus by the Father. And then he adds, no one knows the Father or, or the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So, in order to know the Father, Jesus has to will to reveal the Father to us. Now, John 1.18, we saw, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And so, as we saw in John 16, we need the Holy Spirit to disclose the things of Christ to us. And we need Christ to disclose the things of the Father to us. And so the triune God must be involved in giving us spiritual understanding. And so speaking to these men then who are confused and Jesus knows they're going to fail that night, he gives them hope for the future. And I hope that if anybody here this morning is confused about something, maybe there's been some tragedy in your life that you just are trying to put the pieces together, or maybe there's been a spiritual failure and you think, how did that happen? Or maybe you're just confused about some doctrinal issue or something in Scripture that you just can't get your mind around. I hope that this gives you hope. That even though you're confused now, he knows that. And he speaks hope to these men who are confused to encourage them. There's a brighter day ahead. So keep on keeping on. Keep seeking the Lord. And asking him for wisdom and for light, and he will give it to you. The second aspect of God's grace that's here is to, be, to overcome spiritual failure. The Lord says, be encouraged by your privilege in prayer. And in verse 26, he repeats again what he just said in verses 23 and 24. Verse 26, he says, in that day you will ask in my name. And I don't say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. Now, this is something Jesus hammered on in this upper room discourse. We saw it in John 14, 
In John 15, it's twice uh, there. It's in John 16 as well that Jesus hits on the privilege of prayer and especially the prayer of asking in his name. And he clarifies further here what he means. He's, He's trying to say, asking in my name doesn't mean that the Father is one step removed, that the Father is going to be distant from you so that you know, you got to work your way up the chain of command to get through to the top boss kind of thing. That's not it. But what he's saying is, asking in my name gives you direct access to the Father. It's the name of Jesus that opens the door, opens the pathway, so you can go boldly into the throne of grace and receive grace and mercy for your time of need. That's what he's getting at. And he explains it in verse 26 or seven, by explaining that the Father himself loves you. That's why you can do this. Now, when Jesus says, I'm not going to ask on your behalf, he's not contradicting the many passages of Scripture that talk about him making intercession for us in heaven perpetually. That's what in his name means. When he makes intercession for us, he pleads his blood before the Father, as the ground for our acceptance so that we now can bring our specific requests directly into the Father because Jesus has gone before us there into the holy place. And so to pray in his name means we come to the Father on the basis of all that Jesus is and all that Jesus has done for us on the cross, and we ask in line with Jesus' purpose and for his glory And what Christ is teaching here is, you're not coming to a reluctant father. You're not coming to one who says, oh, I don't know. The answer is no, probably. No, it's not that at all. He's saying, because I have gone before you with my blood, that's my name, and because the father himself loves you, you can come into his presence and know that you'll be received. And again, not to cite him again, but uh, Calvin nails this text. He says this, this is a remarkable passage by which we are taught that we have the heart of the heavenly father as soon as we have placed before him the name of his son. Isn't that wonderful? We have the heart of the heavenly father. When we say, father, I'm not coming in my name. That would get me excluded. I'm coming in the name of your son, Jesus. Bingo, you're in. You're in. I, I didn't put this in my notes, but an illustration just popped into my mind of one I heard a guy use years ago. A, a man took his kids to the county fair. And, you know, you buy those long rolls of tickets so they can get into the rides. And he, he had his boy and then a lot of his boy's friends. And they're all in line. The dad's tearing off tickets, handing one to each boy as they go through. And kid comes up he doesn't even know. He says, wait a minute, who are you? And the boy says, oh, I'm with your son. He goes, oh, gives him a ticket, and he's in. You see, that was the end. I'm with your son. I'm with your son. And that's our end with the Father. I'm with your son. I'm with Jesus. And that gets us into his presence. Now, if you fail spiritually, chances are you failed because you haven't prayed. But then Satan comes along, and he doubles it up and says, ha, you can't pray now. Look what you've done. 
you've really messed up, man. And, and if you pray, you're just being a hypocrite. And God is going to sneer at your hypocrisy. And God is going to just shake his head and say, don't bother me with your phony prayers. And that is a lie straight from the pit of hell. That's what Jesus is saying. When you messed up, when you have failed spiritually, don't not pray. You're going to say, oh, I can't. I'm not worthy. Guess what? None of us are worthy to pray ever in ourselves. The only way we can pray is the name of Jesus. We come in the name of Jesus. And if you've messed up, you come and you say, Lord God, you know my sin. And I confess it to you. And I plead the blood of Jesus over my sin. But I'm still your child. And Lord, would you be gracious to me, the sinner? And you're in. You're in. Remember in Revelation how Satan accuses the brethren before the throne? And how did they overcome? By the word of their testimony. That is, I believe in Jesus and the blood of the Lamb. And they didn't love their own lives, even unto death. But it's the blood. It's the name of Christ. And so Jesus here says, when, when you've messed up spiritually, first of all, there's hope for a brighter day in the future. You'll understand more. Secondly, there's hope through prayer. Don't stay away from the throne because you messed up. Come into the throne through the name of Jesus and receive grace for help in all of your need. Thirdly, to overcome spiritual failure, Jesus says here, be encouraged by the Father's special love and grace. And that's verse 27. For the Father himself loves you. Let me repeat that. The Father himself loves you. Isn't that a wonderful thing? He loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. Note that love for Christ and faith in Christ are inextricably bound up. If you believe in Christ, you love him. If you love him, you believe in him. And at first glance, this verse sounds like, well, wait a minute. It sounds like God's love is conditional, you know, that he only loves me if I love Christ and believe in him. And there are so many other scriptures that contradict that, that that cannot be the meaning here. For example, in 1 John 4.10, the same apostle says, And this is love. Not that we love God, no, no, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Or later in 1 John 4, 19, he adds, we love, and some manuscripts add, we love God or we love him because he first loved us. And as you know, in Romans 5, the apostle Paul there says, God loved us while we were still sinners. We were his enemies And he loved us. So this verse cannot mean that God's love for us is somehow triggered and conditioned by our initial love for Christ. The thought here is rather the same as we saw back in chapter 14 in verse 23, where Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, and my Father will love him and will come and will make our abode with him. Or then in John 15, 10, Jesus added, If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And so he's talking here about a special love that the Father has for those who love his Son. Uh, There is a sense, of course, in which God loves the whole world, John 3.16. 
But there's a special sense in which Christ loves the church. He loves his own with that special love. Let me illustrate that. Say my dad had met my now wife, Marla, before I met Marla. He was at a Christian gathering, and she's a young sister in the Lord, and he meets her. Well, as a man of God, he would have loved her as a sister in Christ, but there wouldn't have been anything special there. She's just a young woman who knows the Lord, and so he would have loved her, but there wouldn't have been a special love. But once she met and married me, my dad had a special love for her. Why? Because she loved his son. See, and that's the idea here. When you love and believe in Jesus, the Father has this special love for you. And in this context, it's important to realize his special love is for men who are about to fail. They're about to turn tail and run at the very moment when, humanly speaking, Jesus needed them to stand with him, and they all abandon him. But I think the encouragement is, if you've failed, Be encouraged by the Father's special love and grace for you because it's a father's love, a father's love for his child. And I can't help but think of the story of the the prodigal son. He left his father, squandered his inheritance, living in a pigsty. But every day the dad was out there looking. He was looking. And when he sees the son... He disgraces himself. It was disgraceful for a Hebrew man to pull up his robe and expose his legs. But he did that and he runs to his son and he embraces him. And the message of that story is when you come back to the father, you don't get a lecture. Instead, he throws a party. He throws a party. That's one of the greatest stories in the whole Bible because it's for sinners who fail. And the message is, come back to the Father. You will be welcomed. You will be received. You will be loved. He will shed his grace upon you. And that's the greatest motivating factor in the Christian life, is that God shows us his love and grace even when we have failed him. Now, that's not an encouragement to go out and fail. (laughs) That's a motivation to not fail, to walk with him. So, to overcome spiritual failure, first of all, recognize there's hope in Christ in the future. He's going to make things clear. Secondly, there's always the privilege of prayer. Thirdly, there's God's special love and grace for his children, which you are if you believe in Jesus. And then fourthly, to overcome spiritual failure, Jesus says, be encouraged by God's sovereign plan of salvation. And that's verse 28. Jesus says, I came, <clears throat> came forth from the Father, and I've come into the world. I'm leaving the world again, and I'm going to the Father. And what Jesus is doing here is succinctly <clears throat> excuse me, summarizing God's sovereign plan of salvation. We sang about it in that song. You know, you, he left heaven above. He came to this earth. He went to the cross on our behalf, and he goes back to heaven. Leon Morris sums it up this way. Here we have the great movement of salvation. 
it's a twofold movement from heaven to earth and back again. Christ's heavenly origin is important, else he could not be the savior of men. Uh, but his heavenly destination is also important, for it witnesses to the Father's seal on the Son's saving work. <clears throat> so let's look at these uh, phrases individually. First, he says, I came forth from the Father. That points to the fact that Christ shared the eternal glory of the Father before the world was ever made. Uh, John 1, 1, we saw in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Jesus told Nicodemus in John three thirteen, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. Secondly, Jesus says, I came into the world. I've come into the world. And why did he come into the world? To reveal the Father to us, because we cannot know God as we've seen, except through Jesus. Um, John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, uh, full of grace and truth. And then Jesus testifies to Pilate in John 18.37. He says, For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. And we know that the truth is in Jesus, but that that truth is also truth about the Father. So Jesus came forth from the Father. He came into this world. Then he says, I'm leaving the world again. And we know that he left the world by way of the cross. He went to the cross voluntarily, not because the Jewish authorities forced it on him, but as we saw in John 10, he said, I lay down my life voluntarily. No one takes it from me, uh, and I take it up again of my own accord. He told uh, Nicodemus in, in uh, John 3:14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so, notice the next word, must the Son of Man be lifted up. It was a necessity. And so the cross was the very reason Jesus came into the world. And then he said, finally, I am going to the Father. And that points to his resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven. And Jesus, of course, would not have been raised from the dead, and he could not have gone back to heaven if the Father had not accepted his offering on the cross as the substitute for our sins and, and approved of his finished work there. Now, maybe you're wondering, well, how does that encourage us when we failed? Well, I hope you see the connection. It helps us realize this. The whole plan of salvation does not originate with you and me. It doesn't originate with your decision. It originates with God's decision. Before the foundation of the world, the triune God planned your salvation. He planned that he would send his own son as a substitute for sinners. He chose you. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6 says this. He chose us. In him, notice when, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. 
So he didn't choose you because he foresaw that you would choose him. That would not be grace. That would put it on your choice. He chose you in grace while you were yet a sinner, a rebel, so that it would all redound to his praise and glory. And so from start to finish, the point is our salvation does not depend on us. It depends on our God and his love and grace. Paul in Philippians 1.6, here's another verse that should encourage you if you failed. He says, for I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. What a wonderful promise. And then lastly, to overcome spiritual failure, the Lord says, be encouraged that ultimately your peace is in him, in Christ, and not in your performance. And that's in verses 29 down through 33. Just to summarize it, the disciples here mistakenly think, now we get it. Ah, finally we've arrived. We understand it, what it's all about, and we believe, case closed. And Jesus shakes his head and says, no. And if you have an NIV by the way, they blow it on the translation of John 16, 31. Jesus in the NIV says, you believe at last. Unless that's sarcastic, that's a bad translation. Jesus is questioning it, saying, do you now believe, really? You know, I mean, in modern English, you could just say, really? Come on. You know, you guys don't have it yet. And then he goes on in the next verse and tells them, you're all going to be scattered this very night and abandon me. But then he concludes with this wonderful promise in verse 33. And here's the encouragement. These things I have spoken unto you so that in me, that's critical, in me you might have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. And so the point is this, when the Lord chose you before the foundation of the world, as we just saw, he knew every single thing about you. He knew all of your secret sins. He knew every rotten thought you would ever have that nobody else but you knows. He knew every rotten word that would come out of your mouth, even those you say out loud in private. He knew all the times, like the disciples, you would arrogantly think, I got it, I know, but you didn't know. Uh, He knew the times when you should have stood boldly, like the disciples should with Jesus that night, and instead you turned tail and ran, and you were not a good witness. He knew everything in advance, and he still chose you as a trophy of his grace. And he promises you that in him, you'll have peace even in this troubled world. Those words, take courage. If you track those through in the New Testament, there's only one time, and that's the time when Jesus calls for blind Bartimaeus to come to him, and the multitude that's near Bartimaeus says to him, take courage, he's calling for you. Other than that one time, Every time those words come in the New Testament, they're on the lips of the Lord Jesus. Take courage. Matthew 9, verse 2, he uh, says to a paralytic, 
Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. In Matthew 9.22, there's the woman who's suffering from the issue of blood, who touches the robe of his garment, and Jesus says to her, Take courage, daughter, your faith has made you well. In Matthew 14.27, the disciples are rowing in the storm, and Jesus comes walking to them on the sea, and they're frightened out of their wits, and he says to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And then one time outside the Gospels, the Apostle Paul has been arrested in Jerusalem. And he doesn't know what his future is going to hold. And that night the Lord appears to him, Acts 23, 11, and says, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Take courage, take courage, take courage. And here... These disciples who were about to be scattered and confused and doubting and their whole world upended, he says to them, take courage because in me you have peace. If we want to summarize these instances of Jesus saying take courage, we could, and you can use this in a sermon, you could say we have courage, encouragement because of Christ's pardon. That's when he says in Matthew 9, 2, uh, son, your sins are forgiven. Uh, secondly, we can take courage because of his power. That's when he tells the woman with the issue of blood, uh, take courage, your faith has made you well. We can take courage because of his presence. That's when he tells the disciples on the stormy sea, it's I, I'm with you guys, don't be afraid. We can take courage with his purpose. That's when he tells the Apostle Paul, I've got a purpose for you in Rome, so don't worry. And then we can take courage because of his peace that he gives us. Even when we fail, he comes and says to us, take courage. Take courage. I've overcome the world, and you're in me, and so it's going to be okay. I uh, try and encourage you to read Christian biographies because... Apart from the Bible, I have gained more in my spiritual life by reading Christian biographies than any other source. They are just good to read. And I wrote an article on what I've gained by reading Christian biographies. You can read the whole thing on the church website. It's called Mining for Gold. But in that article, I mention how some of the greats in church history, John Wesley and uh, William Carey, the founder of Modern Missions, both of those men had troubled marriages. And uh, David Livingston, great pioneer missionary to Africa, he was a loner. He had numerous conflicts with fellow workers. He essentially abandoned his wife and children who suffered greatly in his absence. And yet God used David Livingston to open Africa to the gospel as it has been since he died. Another missionary great, C.T. Studd, he's well known for a famous quote, If Christ be God and died for me, no sacrifice is too great for me to make for him. Well, Studd left his wife in poor health and went to Africa, and he only saw her once for a couple of weeks in the last 16 years of her life. 
instead worked 18-hour days. He expected everyone else to do the same, and he chewed them out if they didn't. His intense dedication to the cause of Christ made him intolerant of anybody who wasn't up to his standard of commitment. And eventually, he alienated everyone who tried to work around him, including his own daughter and son-in-law. And eventually, the very mission that he founded in Africa, which today is known as, I think, the World Evangelization Crusade, they fired him because he was so difficult to work with. And yet, C.T. Studd was this great pioneer missionary. Another one, Bob Pierce, a little more contemporary. You can read his biography. He loved the world, and he abandoned his family. He traveled in ministry 10 months out of every year on the average. He would come home and not even unpack his bags, telling his family, I don't live here. He preached in the Far East in great crusades, and he saw thousands of people come forward and receive Christ. He founded an organization that still exists called World Vision, Because he saw all of these desperate orphans and he knew that they needed help. And so he founded World Vision to help them. And yet Bob Pierce's oldest daughter took her own life out of despair. And he and his wife were frequently separated, not just by distance because he was gone, but I mean separated in their marriage where she said, I'm not going to live with you at various points. He never tamed his explosive temper. Finally, the board of World Vision could not work with him, and they fired Bob Pierce, who founded that World Vision mission. And yet Bob Pierce loved the Lord and served the Lord to the end of his life. Now, I could give you other examples, but my point is not to take pot shots at these servants of the Lord, and it's not to justify my own shortcomings and sins, which are many, but... It's to say this, when I read these guys' lives and I realize, you know what? God used that very rough instrument in a pretty mighty way. It gives me a glimmer of hope. Well, maybe God can use me. You know, I'm not perfect and I'm certainly not as flagrant in my sins as many of those men were. But maybe, maybe, maybe there's hope that God can use a rough instrument like me, and my message this morning, I hope you pick up, is he can use you. You say, oh, no, you don't know what I've done. No, I don't, but God does. And he saved you anyway. He saved you anyway. And if you strayed, well, there's the prodigal. He wants you to come home today, to come back to him. Say, Father, I've sinned. And that's about all you're going to get out of your mouth before he throws the robe around you and throws the party and says, welcome home, welcome home. And so if there's hope, the point of this text is, I mean, if there's failure, the point of this text is there's hope. There's hope for you in the amazing love and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I invite you to come to him. Let's bow.